Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, A Well-Researched Christmas, as we look to the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, God Breaks In. I don't know if you've ever had a break-in in your home. I mean, most people who have had one will say that it's not the value of things that were taken that's most disturbing. It's the sense that they've been violated, that their home simply isn't safe anymore. Someone uninvited made themselves at home in what is your home. They looked into all that was personal and, and took whatever they wanted. It's profoundly unsettling. In a very real way, the story of Christmas is a story of a break-in. But unlike home break-ins, the owner of this home broke into his own home. You see, God owns this earth, even though many human beings find this very hard to admit. You know, they find God unwelcome. They lock the door to the world and say, God, you're an outsider now. The world belongs to us human beings, at least that's what we want to imagine. But God broke into his own home, and now this world can never feel safe from his presence again. Christmas is profoundly unsettling. That is the story of Christmas. But I'm afraid I'm telling the end of the story of Christmas. I should begin at the beginning. Let me tell the story as told by a man, both a physician and a historian. His name was Luke. I'm reading chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So let's begin where Luke begins. He wants us to understand that the story of Christmas is not a fairy tale, one that begins with words that sound like this, you know, once upon a time in a, in a land far away. No, no, this is not one of those stories. This story begins in real history, in a real location, in a real time period with real characters that all historians recognize. The historical setting of Christmas begins with the words, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. You know, Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius on September 23, 63 BC. Octavius was especially famous for having been a direct relative of Julius Caesar and for defeating Antony and Cleopatra at Actium and seizing power in Rome. At the age of 36 in the year 27 BC, he was named Emperor of Rome and in fact became the first Emperor of Rome because he changed Rome's constitution. Augustus is the first emperor because the Roman Senate gave up all its power to him, and the Senate was consigned after that to being a mere advisory body. The Senate gave Octavius the name Augustus, which means the exalted one. And the powers that Augustus inherited were breathtaking. He was given the power to rule all civil matters, which meant overseeing laws and their enforcement, He was also the supreme commander of the Roman military, and he was given power over all religious matters of the state. Indeed, by 12 BC, some seven to eight years before the birth of Jesus, he took upon himself the name high priest of the state. 
So notice his titles, High Priest of the State and the Exalted One. He was a great builder. He often boasted that he inherited Rome as a city of bricks and left it a city of gold. He expanded his empire by defeating Spain and France, Hungary and Croatia. He annexed Egypt and most of southwestern Europe. He introduced something called Pax Romana. It means the peace of Rome in which he secured all his borders from his enemies and allowed the empire to exist under an unusually long period of peace. Augustus was the Prince of Peace. Now, after his death, the people of Rome worshipped him and called him a god. Inscriptions of him throughout his time hailed him as the savior of the whole world. This is the man we're talking about. And during the reign of this man, a decree went out that the entire world should be registered. Now, in that day, the entire world meant the Roman Empire. And Augustus undertook a massive census of his empire, no doubt to assess its strength, but also to tax all its citizens. And historians tell us that he was the most brilliant tax strategist in Roman history. So this is a very unusual scenario. And Luke, our historian, adds the words that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And I find Luke's words so amazingly precise. There were, in fact, two registrations under Quirinius, and the second one was the infamous one. It was taken when Jesus was about 12 years old, and that registration really made the news, created riots among the Jews because it disrespected Jewish traditions. It almost caused war. But the earlier census, the peaceful one, well, that had provisions in it for the Jews. Luke says, just so you won't be confused, this is the registration that I'm talking about allowing the Jews to go to their ancestral homes to be registered there, well, that accomplished two things. It allowed the Romans to get what they wanted, and it allowed the Jews to get what they wanted. So if you had to be registered, you're going to be registered in a way that respected Jewish scripture. Jews wanted to be known according to their tribes and according to their place of their ancient inheritance. And Quirinius, known in his day as a soldier and a brilliant administrator, must have convinced Augustus that if you're going to get what you want out of the Jews, that this unusual way of doing things will ensure the peace. It's messy. It involves huge people movements. But in spite of the inconvenience, this method will prevent the Jews from rioting. It will be a a win-win. And Augustus must have agreed with his brilliant commander. And that, says Luke, is what happened. So Luke wants us to know how this Jesus, who by all other factors, would have been born in Nazareth, but was not. So how did that happen? Ah, says Luke, that event, the birth of Jesus, corresponded to what happened when the Romans were seeking a way to tax the Jews and at the same time didn't want a Jewish riot. You know, it was Martin Luther who said that Satan is none other than the unwilling servant of God. But that can also be said of world rulers, all of them. God rules them all, whether they want it or not. I mean, how could Augustus, the man who fashioned himself to be the savior of the whole world and the, and the prince of peace, the high priest of the world's religions and, and the greatly exalted one, how could he have known that this seemingly minor matter of census and taxes and appeasing the Jewish sensibilities that this was being used by God and that he became God's servant. And what do I mean? Well, 750 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Micah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words about the coming of the Messiah. 
Micah 5 verse 2 reads, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, what an amazing irony that Augustus, the man who was born in the corridors of power and lived in the corridors of uncontested power all of his life, was about to be dethroned by one born in a barn, who would later say that he did not even have a place to, to lay his own head. And Caesar's own decree was the very one that led to the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy of Micah. Yeah, Augustus himself led the way to assure that the Christ would be born as the ancient prophecy predicted. He made sure for all time that all people would know that Jesus is indeed King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that his birth is in keeping with the Old Testament. It was Philip Ryken that said, God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate so the real Savior would stand alone as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And David Gooding said, for Augustus, the taking of census was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But and here is the irony of the thing. In the process, as he thought of tightening his grip and his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. And that's the story of Christmas. And that's why it's so important to have a well-researched Christmas, because when we don't do the research, we fail to understand how breathtaking all of this is. See, Christmas teaches us that God was breaking into his own world, and unwilling men were unwillingly opening the door to the house using their own keys and bidding him to come. Now, I don't know how to tell the story of Christmas with, without telling the story of the sovereign hand of God. See, in Isaiah 37, verse 29, Isaiah is prophesying against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who was threatening to destroy Jerusalem and kill her king. And God says to Sennacherib, I'll put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back to the way in which you came. See, don't you see, that's what God did to Augustus Caesar. He put a hook in his nose and a bit in his mouth, and Augustus called his senses and handed the keys to God to enter into his own house. Christ has come into the world, but how will the world know unless God's people testify to the light? Jesus said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. December has become a time of great blessing and celebration for the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, and a time when those passionate about sharing the light of God's Word join together to ensure it continues to be shared across the nation. December is critical in setting the stage for the year to come. And in 2019, Back to the Bible Canada will strive to share the light of Christ in more ways to more people than any other time in its 60-year history. Our goal is to raise $427,000 by December 31st, 2018. The task is significant. But by God's grace and the support of ministry friends and partners from coast to coast, it will happen. Join us in continuing to bring the light of Christ to our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now 
let's get down to the details which Luke mentions concerning the birth of Jesus. Joseph also, along with so many others, traveled to their ancestral homelands. This Joseph was of the house of the lineage of David, himself being a direct ancestor of Israel's great king. God had promised David that one of his ancestors would rule on his throne forever, and that his kingdom would never end. And from that throne, this king would not only rule Israel, he would rule all nations. So this Joseph, carpenter in Nazareth, was a direct ancestor of David. And as the census was announced, he knew that his ancestral home was in Bethlehem, the birthplace of King David. So Joseph went to Bethlehem. Now again, some explanation is required. There were two Bethlehems in that day, and he went to Bethlehem Ephratah. And that, I know, is just an aside, but when Micah prophesied where the Messiah would come from, Micah was very specific. He talked about Bethlehem Ephratah. And when Luke mentions Joseph's journey, he mentions Bethlehem, the city of David, so that there also would be no confusion as to where Joseph went. Now, Joseph also takes Mary with him. And if you've been following me up to this point, you will notice that I said that in the ancient Jewish world that a couple who was betrothed would have lived with their parents in their parents' home, and they would have had no physical contact with each other, that is, until marriage. But here, well, it just sounds a bit confusing. Notice Luke tells us that Joseph traveled to Bethlehem with Mary, and verse 5 says, to be registered with Mary his betrothed. Well, if they were betrothed and not married, why are they traveling together and why at taxation time are they considered a family? But the answer to that question, again, takes us back into the culture of the ancient Jewish world. Daryl Bach, one of the best scholars who have examined Luke, believes that the word betrothed does not suggest they weren't married yet. Well, how so? Well, says Bach, Luke uses the word betrothed to indicate that it means here that the marriage had not yet been consummated. So Bach argues that Joseph and Mary would have been married right after Mary became pregnant. That's to say, Mary is visited by an angel from God. The angel indicates that God's going to come upon her and she will be made pregnant by an act of God. And you'll also remember from Matthew's account that when Joseph heard that Mary was pregnant, It took a visit from an angel to convince him that indeed this was an action of God. And then after that, the angel told him not to be afraid, but to make Mary his wife. And so we have to assume then that the marriage between Joseph and Mary was moved forward so that she would not be found to be expecting outside of wedlock. Ah, and that's what Dr. Bach wants to point out. By continuing to use the term betrothed, Luke is telling us that during the early part of their marriage, that is, while Mary was awaiting the birth of this child to be called the Son of the Most High, Joseph and Mary engaged in no sexual relationships. And this was in accordance with the command of God. I mean, after all, the prophecy from Isaiah 7 verse 14 says that a virgin will both conceive and that a virgin will bear a son. And so Luke calls the couple betrothed, even while they were, at this point, legally married. But I think given this truth, many have, in an unwarranted fashion, therefore, speculated that Mary remained a virgin, perpetually a virgin. But if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, this is, of course, not true. So how do we know that? Well, for one, we know it from Matthew 13, 54 and 55. 
Jesus has, in that passage, just come to his hometown in Nazareth, and he's teaching in the synagogue there. So let's let Matthew explain the reaction. The people say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now, the text doesn't mention any sisters, so either they're just not mentioned or the family only had five boys. But in either case, it is clear that Jesus had four brothers. And furthermore, in Galatians 1.19, Paul writes, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, he calls him. Seems clear that James, the oldest of the brothers, became the pastor of the Christian church in Jerusalem, and he's also the author of the New Testament book of James, and that Judas, the youngest brother, is the author of the book of Jude. So in short, we ought not to allow legends to cloud the Christmas story. A well-researched Christmas allows the real story of Christmas to shine forth, a story of a virgin conception, of a marriage of a couple who did not have relations until after the child is born, and then a couple that went on to have a family. But let's get back to Luke's birth account. Mary and Joseph, according to Luke 2, verse 7, were told that there was no room for them in the inn. You know, when the Romans demanded a census following a massive moving of much of the Jewish population, Mary and Joseph traveled about 150 kilometers or about 95 miles to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And many people have been on that road, and when they arrived, places to stay were very hard to come by. There's no room in the inn. And I know that ever since this account, the innkeeper has gotten a very bad rap. So let me put in a word for the innkeeper. Now, first, we don't know that Mary and Joseph met with an innkeeper at all. So please don't think about this as a motel, because it wasn't. The actual word in the Greek language suggests a public shelter. So there was no room for them in the public shelter. So if you need an image of a, you know, a gymnasium full of beds during a time of disaster, well, that's probably the right picture. There would have been no privacy there, and God in his sovereignty designed that they would be in some kind of a barn or far more likely a rough or primitive cave shelter for animals, and that's where they would have come. There's a traditional location in Israel, which is claimed as the actual birthplace of Jesus, and that location might be accurate because that site was identified from back in the second century, and today a church has been erected over that site. It's called the Church of the Nativity. But whatever it looked like in Jesus' day, it was no doubt a rather crude cave or an animal shelter. And there Mary gives birth to her son. It's not a romantic scene that makes, you know, a nice cover for a greeting card. It's a primitive and uncomfortable place. And after the birth, they laid the child in a feeding trough, which probably was not a nice wooden thing, but a trough in the ground. Perhaps it was, you know, made of stone. There's nothing romantic here. And Ken Hughes describes it this way. He says, sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and an acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. Baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. I wonder why Luke added the word firstborn. Of course, it was a firstborn. 
But the word seems so redundant, so unnecessary. I mean, after all, every other word in this text is chosen with such precision. But then, perhaps this word is chosen with precision as well. You know, Luke, you'll recall, had been exposed to the ministry of Paul, and he no doubt heard Paul proclaim words that are written down in Colossians 1.15, describing the nature of Christ. Paul said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, the word firstborn is a title. It indicates someone who has the right to inherit everything from his father. All the glory and majesty and the rightful rule of this earth belongs to this one. And Luke is telling us that when God broke into this world, he came as the firstborn, as the one who rightfully inherits all that belongs to the Father. See, the contrast of the birth, the humility, the glory could not be greater. It leads us to wonder, why is the story of Christmas like this? See, although Luke doesn't tell us, the rest of the Bible does. I can think of at least three reasons why the story is like this. First, God wanted to show us how great was his condescension in in becoming human. If Christ were born in a palace, we would never have seen how much he humbled himself to become a man. Only this picture will help us to see what actually happened here. And second, Christ's reason for coming was suffering for our sins, and it would be inappropriate for a suffering Messiah to come in any other way. And third, God wanted us to see the great folly behind pride and arrogance. And so Christ, God the Son, broke into his own world not to ravage our house, even though some of us may feel that way. After all, he is still unwelcome in so many homes today. But he broke into the house to be our Savior, to give those who live in this house mercy. That's the story of Christmas. John, you spent a lot of time talking about the facts of history in this message, and I think that really stirred well for me because, you know, so many of us, we just look at the story of Christmas as just a story amongst other fairy tales, but this is history. This is documented history. Yeah, you know, Ben, I was reading something just recently about something that Albert Einstein had said in his life, and he he had said that, uh, you know, the Bible is just filled with myths. Nobody can believe this. But, you know, since Einstein's time, the amount of archaeological digs and historical research that has been done and that have placed this account in real history, I mean, it just belies what Einstein and so many others have said as well. I mean, this, in fact, happened. And, you know, perhaps, you know, because we've mythologized Christmas by, you know, by putting up whatever creches that we have in church and so forth, that we tend to think of it in fairy tale terms, but it's never to be thought this way. This is hardcore historical stuff. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Visiting the Promised Land never loses its appeal. That's why I feel it's so important to offer Back to the Bible Canada Israel Experience April 27th to May 6, 2019. If you're able, taking the time to discover Jerusalem, the Garden Tomb, Sea of Galilee, King David's city, the list goes on and on, well, that will transform your understanding of the Bible and offer a spiritual impact like perhaps nothing else can on this earth. So consider joining me in Israel, and I'll do my best to bring every location to life and allow the Spirit of God to minister to your heart and mind. 
It all offers great fellowship and refreshment that sets the stage for new lifelong friendships. So consider joining us, and for more information, please call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.